0: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Wen Sheng Wang about his new book, White Lotus Rebels and South China Pirates, Crisis and Reform in the Qing Empire. This came out with Harvard University Press in 2014. Now, indeed, there are pirates and there are rebels in this book. So if that's um, initially what draws you to the book, then you're in good company and you'll find a lot of pirates and a lot of rebel activity in this work. But you'll also find a really sophisticated and really fascinating study of the developments of political machinations, both within the court and without, in the context of the Qing, that potentially has consequences that extend much more broadly. So, what Wang does is he takes a period of Qing history that we either neglect, that is, the Jiaqing reign period. Or we understand in a very particular kind of a way. That's the Qianlong period. And he reframes this larger period in Qing history as a way of bringing out not just a transformation in how we understand this dynasty in world history, how we understand narratives of decline, particularly that tend to color this period of Qing historiography, but also how we might understand crises and the inner workings of court politics more generally. So it's a book that That pays really careful attention to the nature and ecology of the highlands and the oceanic frontiers of the Qing and uses this as a foundation for understanding technologies of state building in the 18th and 19th centuries. And in doing so, really reframes again how we understand the Qing, but it also offers a kind of model for incorporating tools and ideas from the social sciences more broadly that we don't usually bring into Qing history, and using them to change not only how we understand this dynasty, but perhaps how we historicize periods of crisis and their consequences more broadly. So it's a really interesting and a really fascinating study with potentially uh, very broad consequences. It was a pleasure to read, and it was really a pleasure to talk with Chung about it. So I hope you'll have a chance to take a look at the book. And definitely, if you are um, either a devotee of Qing history, a student, or a scholar of Qing history, this is a must-read. Enjoy. We're here today to talk with Wenxiong Wang about his brand new book, White Lotus Rebels and South China Pirates, Crisis and Reform in the Qing Empire. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Wenxiong, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. I thought it was a great book.
1: Thank you very much, Karma, and it's good to be here.
0: So Wenxiang, could you start us off as is traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field of Chinese history? How did you come to work on Chinese history and on the Qing in particular?
1: Uh, well, um, it's quite a natural process for me, uh, I was born and raised in China and have always been interested in reading history books and studying history. So I became a history major and got my bachelor's and master's degree from the Wuhan University. But my major field of interest at that time was actually early modern Europe. Hmm. When I worked on my MA thesis, which was about the consumer revolution in 18th century Britain, I decided to apply for the PhD programs in the United States and continue my study of European history. Fortunately, I got a great offer from UC Irvine and was able to study with Kenneth Palmer and Armin Wang. And both of them are great advisors, and they suggest me. Uh, to switch from the field of European history to the field of Chinese history and try to study Chinese history from a new, larger perspective. I took their advice and never regret it. It's always a good idea to step out of our native cultural environment and look at it from another point of view.
0: Well, thank you. That's really interesting. And it actually... Um Given that background, it really informs also some of the methodological (laughs) and conceptual work that you're doing in the book, so that's great. (laughs) So the book itself, on which we're here to talk about today, takes us into a key period in the history of the Qing Empire, and that is the Qianlong-Jiaqing reign periods and transition. Mm-hmm. And it reevaluates how we understand in many different ways this crucial period of Qing history in light of the um, outgrowth, the eruption of major social and political crises and the yes. consequences of imperial response to those crises, not just for how we understand Qing history, but how we also understand world history. So it's it's a really important book for Qing history, but it's also really fascinating, I think, for anyone interested in global history, in uh, conceptual ways that we understand uh, social, political, um, historical processes. So it's really speaking to a number of different kinds of audiences. And we'll talk about all of that (laughs) Or at least some of that in the course of the conversation. Okay, so given that, how did you come to work on this particular topic within the broader field of Chinese and Qing history? What brought you to work on this particular subfield? This
2: book is based on my dissertation research. The original ideas came from my first and second year research seminar papers at UC Irvine. The instructors give us a lot of leeway in choosing our own topics. I have a long term interest in the relationship and the interaction between state, society, and ideology, especially from the perspective of empire building, social, political, and cultural control, and popular protest.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I have always been fascinated by the simple fact that the centralized Chinese imperial system was able to reproduce and sustain itself for such a long time, despite the expanding territory of the empire, uh, the increasing population, and the countless uh, numerous internal rebellions and external aggressions. And this question of governability and political sustainability became all the more interesting and bothering for the period of late 18th and early 19th centuries, a highly troubled period for China's last dynasty. And this period uh, saw a rising wave of social protests, which rocked the Manchu regime and engulfed much of the empire. We know a lot About uh, the rise and fall of those crises in the local frontier context. But we don't know too much about the broader impact on Qing empire building. And in this book, I choose two concomitant, simultaneous. One is the wine industry banning, the other is South China piracy, and their dramatic combination was the climax to the upheavals at the turn of the 19th century. So I decided to study the politics of the two events of social protest and how the state's responses to them help us better understand the transition from high qing to late qing.
0: Fabulous. Thank you. So this was something that you worked on as a dissertation project, and it's also the focus of the book. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Were there any kind of major changes from dissertation to book, either in how you were thinking about the project um, or how you were conceptualizing your own arguments um, with regard to these phenomena?
2: Uh, sure. Um, I didn't make a major structural changes, when I wrote the dissertation, my advisor uh, reminded me that uh, I'd better start thinking about how to turn it into a book and how to appear to a wider audience. And that's a great suggestion, but I still ended up writing a very long dissertation. So the main revision I did was to make the manuscript much shorter, and it's quite a challenge. I cut out some of the literature review, background information, the radical underpinning, and uh, detailed narratives and footnotes. I also tried to streamline the chapters by making them more coherent and more consistent. Um, in order to appear to more readers uh, outside the field of Chinese history, I made some parts of the book more social science-related by introducing some useful concepts and methodologies from sociology and uh, political science. Mm
0: -hmm. Great. Thank you. And we'll talk about, I think, um, a number of those, or I hope we'll get to talk about a number of those methodologies Mm -hmm. in the course of the conversation. So the book opens on a very particular day. It opens on New Year's Day in 1796 with the ceremony by which the Qianlong Emperor abdicated the Qing throne and his successor, the Jiaqing Emperor, took over. And these are going to be our two imperial touchstones for the book. These two emperors and the, the kind of transition among their reigns, the the distinctions between their reigns and the ways that their reign periods really bookend this really crucial period of Qing history. Now, Uh 10 days into the Jiaqing reign, something called the White Lotus Rebellion flared up, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh Meanwhile, at the same time, well-organized pirate fleets collaborated with newly unified Vietnamese state and attacked the southeast coast of China. So this sets up these two major crises that are happening right um, after this transition from Qianlong to Jiaqing. This was part of, as you show early in the book, a global upsurge in socio-political unrest that happens around the turn of the 19th century. And you bring us in this introduction into the more kind of global world historical consequences of this global upsurge at this particular time. Now, this now I'm using this to kind of set up where we are for listeners, right? especially perhaps for listeners who don't focus on Qing history. So that's where we are in time. Now, these two events drained the Manchu treasury and exposed other long-standing problems. And this brings us into really the contributions of the book. While previous scholars have treated these two crises, right, the White Lotus Rebellion and the pirates, as a watershed marking the beginning of the end. right, The beginning mm-hmm. of the end of Qing rule. Right. Your, your book actually takes a totally different tack. It really turns that on its head and this is one of many conceptual innovations you're making. So you're instead going to argue and I think very successfully here, that these crises in the 1790s actually made the Qing better by Mm. instigating a major reorganization of the state. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is where I'd like to um, open us into um, sort of our exploration of the book. So can you talk a little bit about that, about sort of how you are really upending the way we typically understand the outcome of these crises as the beginning of the end? And how are you transforming that um, into something that actually marked a, an improvement in the late Qing? So can you talk about that innovation of the book?
2: Uh uh, I think it's a major uh a problem of perspective. Uh traditional evaluation of uh the Chenong Jia tradition transition uh proceeds from this genealogical and outcome based uh uh assessment and uh you know, they situate this period, uh, they examine it from the perspective of the greater wave of upheavals in the mid-19th century and also from the ultimate pers- collapse of the Qing dynasty in 1911. So, so I don't think this is a very correct uh, historical baseline. So I think we should uh, study this period from a an evolutionary and forward perspective. That is, we have to set up the stage by examining the historical context, the long 18th century, and its major dynamic of historical change. So that's what I did in my first part, which is a very short background chapter. I considered a broad range of structural and conjunctural development, which overburdened the high state and precipitated the crisis during the qianlong Jiaqing transition. I think we should take this high chin period as the historical baseline against which to locate changes and to evaluate the successes and failures of the empire building in the Qin Ring. And this perspective, evolutionary perspective, can give us better idea what the judging state had accomplished and what it could and could not achieve because it is structured in a very uh, in, uh, in a institutionalized his, uh, structural historical setting. And we have to contextualize the period in the right historical context.
0: Great. Thank you. Now, one of the other um, transformations, just in terms of historiography of the Qing that you're making here, that you set out early in the book, is that you're really kind of changing the way we understand the nature of these two rain periods as rain periods as well. And this includes both shining light on and giving ample attention to the Jiaqing rain. And you mentioned that this is usually a neglected rain period in the history of the Qing, but it also means turning... Um, or really reevaluating how we typically understand the Chanlong period. And Chanlong is mm-hmm. usually, you know, celebrated uh, yeah. something that we, you know, yay, Chanlong wasn't he fabulous? And you're basically showing some of the problems um, in his right. reign. Now you talk about this in terms of a few um, really interesting concepts here in the introduction. Um, you right. call the Chanlong period an era of political dividend. So can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about some of these conceptual ways that you're helping us reframe the Chanlong period, including this idea of an era of political dividend, but really um, any of the other ways that you think you're making important conceptual contributions to how we understand this period?
2: Yeah, yeah. To talk about this concept of political dividend, I I think we need to start from my new concept of political sustainability, because I developed these two interchangeable terms, political dividend and political debt, in order to measure the sustainability of Qing empire building. And uh, I uh, I came up with this concept in order to... You know, um, better understand the you know uh, uh, state making process in the Chenong Jiajin tradition. I want to propose a new general approach for studying critical upheavals and their impact on historical change. And uh, sustainable politics is one big organizing concept of the book. The other one is all encompassing contentious crisis. So. I think we usually talk about, uh, you know, economic sustainability and the environmental sustainability, but we tend to overlook uh, the fact that, you know, sustainable development has a political component in it. Uh, we can use this to evaluate the process of empire building and state making. Unlike its economic and ecological counterpart, political sustainability is not about a human's relationship to the resource basis and to the natural environment. Instead, it depends on creating and recreating a viable, stable set of relations among major strategic, political, social actors at different levels. And this general concept means organizing individuals and groups to achieve shared political objectives keeping existing tensions in balance and making cost-efficient negotiations when any conflicts go out of control. So I want to emphasize that the key to this definition is the political system's ability to maintain a coordinated and compatible relationship among different performance areas and sub-mechanism of state-making, as many scholars have emphasized the different uh, dimension of state-making and prior-building process. So the essential po- uh, point is to make the state's function more compatible with its own changing capacities and with societal challenges. And this is indispensable condition for any long-term social-political development no matter we are talking about Qin China or modern United States. I think it's a universal concept that can be applied in different historical settings. Hmm. So so that's my understanding of political sustainability. As for the period of political dividends Uh, It refers to the period in which the potential of sustainable political development was pretty good, uh, largely because of favorable historical legacies and good timing. So, for instance, Channel Emperor, the great emperor, he had a great fortune. He is a very lucky guy. He had the great fortune to ascend the throne at a very favorable historical juncture. He profited from the great achievement his Manchu forebears, and it enabled him to carry the dynasty to greater heights of accomplishment. For example, he lived, grew up and ruled in one of the most affluent periods in China's imperial history, and the physical success of his grandfather Kangxi and his father Yongzhen put the economy on the upswing and that allowed him a gigantic fortune to play with. And in addition, the phenomenal success of empire building under his predecessors also enabled him to preside over and develop a highly centralized bureaucratic state. And building on those favorable conditions, Geno Emperor greatly expanded the state's territory and increased its penetration into local society. But I argue that this remarkable success, this great leap forward in empire building, was not sustainable because it was often achieved at the price of over-exploiting already strained state resources, organizational resources, and prematurely reaping political dividends, some of which should have been left to his imperial successors. So the potential political sustainability can be exhausted due to bad policies and misguided strategies. And that's what happened in the late Qianlong reign. And so he not only created uh, a mess for himself, but also many headaches for his imperial successors, uh, especially his son, Qing Emperor, who had to face this period of political debt. So he had to carry out a series of political reforms in order to, you know, to to save this overburdened regime and uh, put it on a sounder footing.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And this is something that actually, um, I think, really nicely takes us into the first part of the book as well before we then move on. So another... Really, it seems to me important and interesting conceptual contribution that you're making in this early part of the book is you're also asking us to think differently, not just about political um, sustainability and about crises, but also about time. So you you invoke Brodell's um, Three Durations of Historical Change, right? And you sort of lead us into a way of thinking about time as multiple and time as existing in three different simultaneous kinds of frame that are going to each... Um, interact and be important for showing the kinds of historical change that you're going to take us into in the book. These are Mm. um, the dimension of the event or the duration of the event. So Mm. here we have the extended Qianlong Jiaqing transition, the Mm. conjuncture, Um, so Qianlong 60-year governance, especially the latter half, and structure, which is a longer-term time frame. So event, Mm -hmm. conjecture, and structure. This Mm -hmm. becomes really important as you take us into the first part of the book um, and really explain what's going on with these crises that you've mentioned earlier. So Mm -hmm. the last part of the 18th century sees a series of upheavals of which the White Lotus Rebellion and the Piracy Crisis are only one part. And so you take us into some of the other rebellions that are happening at the same time, the Wang Lun Rebellion, the Lin Shuangwen Uprising, and a Miao mm. Rebellion. Mm. Now, you understand these, and this is why I'm bringing this up right after the Brodel, right, the three events. You understand these not as discrete events, but instead as what you call a conjuncture, uh, mm. you know, linking it up to... I. I believe, the kinds of time frames and the structure right. for understanding timeframes. Right. Um, so can you um, talk a little bit about this? Um, because you ask us to understand this as a conjuncture that both separated, but also brought together the high Qing and the post-opium war years, which are tend, you know, which tend to be thought of as two different kinds of, um, of spaces, so the uprisings as a conjuncture and how this um, helps us understand time a little mm. bit differently conceptually in your work. Yeah,
2: um, a very important goal of this book is to understand the interaction between structure and event and bridge the explanatory gap between the two. Uh, you mentioned the Brodel, he highlights three durations of historical time structure, conjuncture, and event. Simply put, the structure is the broad continuous forces like geography and the climate, the long degree. The conjunction is the medium time frame, the event, the short term. Grudel places a lot of emphasis on structure and takes events as quote-unquote form on the sea. And from his perspective, the study of history is largely the study of structural continuity and discontinuity. An examination of the long-term structural evolution can reveal trends and patterns of historical development, the deep-seated structure of history. But some other scholars point out that Conjuncture and event are also very important because those conjuncture and events based on individual choices, group decisions, and collective actions are also important in propelling historical development. An in-depth analysis of key events and conjunctures is indispensable for a proper understanding of enduring structures. So, um, I, design, uh, I, I design my analytical framework and those uh, conceptual devices in order to, uh, including the all-encompassing contentious crisis, in order to bridge the explanatory gap between event and structure, and ask how they interact with conjuncture in different historical settings. So I try to make sense how the three duration of historical time can, um, you know, interact and play out in the Chinese case. And uh, the dramatic combination of Why notice rebelling and South China piracy during a time of global crisis and change provides an ideal perspective to study this interaction between structural conjuncture, and events. And I want to demonstrate how focusing on the three brutal temporal concepts can show the Qianlong-Zhaqin crisis in a new night. As two major cases of all-encompassing contentious crisis, the Y-Notes and piracy crisis were not merely explosive events of social protest. They also should be conceptualized as a mediated conjuncture of decisive intervention, which can change the structural transformation of state, society, and culture.
0: Thank you so much. Um, And that that really, I think, nicely sets us up for moving into the second part of the book, which takes us into a little bit more depth in exploring each of these crises, and in in particular, exploring each crisis from the perspective of its emergence in a frontier area. So Mm. part two of the book places the White Lotus Rebellion and the South China piracy crisis in their frontier context. And these chapters um, in part two take a local or bottom-up approach, as you call it. And I mention that because that's going to contrast with the top-down approach taken in the next part of the book. But here we've got a local bottom-up approach. So chapters two and three each take on one of these crises. Chapter two takes on the White Lotus Rebellion in the Han River Highlands. And chapter three takes on the piracy crisis in the South China Sea. So let's look into the White Lotus Rebellion. Now, chapter Chapter 2 focuses on contextualizing this rebellion within the context of the particular kind of frontier or borderland that this Han River Highland context created. So can Mm -hmm. you talk... um, a little bit about that. What kind of frontier was this highland context and how did the nature of the highland territory that this was happening in shape the kinds of and the forms of resistance that emerged that the White Lotus Rebellion was part of?
2: Uh, sure. Uh, the Han River Highlands uh, is a huge mountainous uh, upland area and uh, at the border of uh, three major provinces in central western China. These are Hubei, uh, Shanxi, and Sichuan provinces. It's kind of an uh, internal frontier, uh, which were governed as the outskirts of China proper and symbolized the outer limits of its agricultural homeland. And uh, in this book, I distinguish the internal frontier and the outer uh, frontier And the internal frontier separated China proper from the outer provinces or marked the periphery of lowland cores due to its tough terrain and uh, no population density. And uh, many of those mountainous peripheries uh, and uh, internal uh, peripheries were frontier of settlement. They are not frontier of conquest. And they begin. To receive large number of immigrants during the 18th century, and uh, that's uh, the same can be said about the Han River, uh, highlands. I want to emphasize that uh, the boundary between internal and external frontier are not stable or rigid because you know, like the frontier, like the Han River highlands, in the Eastern Zofia Road it was considered as an external borderland that marked the outer limits of early modern uh, chinese uh, sorry early chinese civilization but centuries of territorial expansion gradually transformed this area into an internal frontier within the china proper so it's a flexible concept and you, you your question ask uh Why, uh, why it is such a hostile and unruly place to rule? Uh, I take it as a kind of a non-state space. And, uh, this concept, uh, was borrowed from Adam Nietzsche and uh, James Scott, who used this concept to describe upland Southeast Asia, especially, uh, Burma. the key uh, elements of this concept is that this area is not were not controlled and not controllable by the state system. That does not mean that there was no state infrastructure in those areas there was in the Han River Highlands. But the infrastructure was too weak to control the proliferation of non-state and anti-state groups who move into this area due to population explosion, due to man-made and natural disasters in the high Qing because the 18th century was the greatest age of Chinese internal migration. And Han River Highlands became a very important destination of those, uh, you know, migrants. And, uh, In this area, the state uh, could not provide enough administrative services and uh, the military establishment was also pretty weak, so the Highlanders, the migrants, took advantage of the weaklies of the state to carry out the border crossing activities and even social protest under state suppression. And that's what happened during the Qianlong-Jiaxin transition. So uh, this Han River Highlands became epicenter of this rebellion.
0: Great, thank you so much. And you take us in this chapter really interestingly into the structure of the society um, of the highlands in this period. And I won't ask you to talk more about this so that we can get to the pirates. But I will oh. mention that in addition to the pirates that we're getting to, and uh, you know, everyone listening to this channel probably knows already how fond I am of pirates. Um, you also bring us into. Communities of salt smugglers and coin counterfeiters, which are um, right. challenging the state's economic control. You bring us into bandits who are presenting a military challenge for the state and sectarian groups who are posing an, a kind of ideological challenge. And you situate um, White Lotus sectarianism within this larger frame of social challenges to the state in a way that I think is, is really um, beautifully done.
1: Mm.
0: So we. If this is one kind of frontier, the highlands and the White Lotus um, uprising in the context of those highlands, the next chapter takes us into a different kind of frontier, but one that is related to the previous example. This is the maritime frontier. So mm. can you, as, as a way of contrasting and comparing with what we've just talked about, can you talk about what's happening on this maritime frontier um, and how, what do we need to know to understand the kind of frontier the South China Sea is to understand how the piracy problem um, and the piracy crisis arises in that context.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, I want to uh, emphasize the major approach uh, I, I use to study both the maritime frontier and uh, the upland, uh, highland uh, areas I just talked about. Um, uh, this part, the part two of this book, is, uh, Uh, draw on the work of political geographer Philip Stenberg and particularly his social construction of the ocean. And Stenberg talked about uh, the development of a maritime zoom. Uh, This process involves a complex process of social construction based on three interacting mechanisms utilization, regulation and representation. I apply this theoretical model not only to South China Sea, but also to the Han River Highlands. An in-depth analysis of the two frontier zones requires not only an examination of the natural geography, but also a history of how they were used, conceptualized, and controlled by both state and societal forces and I investigate how different non-state and anti-state groups try to have their interest represented through different construction of the frontier space, and how those constructions contributed to the contentious politics within those space. And I want to emphasize a general dialectic in this frontier process of social construction. On the one hand, both the South China Sea and Han River Highlands were subject to artificial administrative division and weak social-political control. On the other hand, as a space of natural topography, it enables the non-state and anti-state actors to carry out routine border crossing activities or even extraordinary social protest and thereby they can reproduce their own autonomy and the regional you know uh, uh, power base and the contradiction between the administrative top-down control and the bottom-up social-economic development suggests that the state's top-down political construction of both borderlands often deviated from the bottom-up perception and utilization of such space by local groups. And this provides the central dynamic behind the escalating frontier disturbance in both the Han River Highlands and the South China Sea at the turn of the 19th century.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Um, and so just to mark for listeners who also happen to be particular fans of pirates, as I am, um, you also talk in that chapter about the nature of the maritime frontier, mm-hmm. so the, the spaces of Guangdong and Fujian. You talk about who got to be a pirate in this period, sort of who were these pirates and what do we need mm-hmm. to know about them as um, individuals and figures. And you also talk about sort of changes in trade patterns in this area by the end of the 18th century and the consequences. Of those changing trade patterns for the rise in um, pirate violence in that area. So if in part two, as we just talked about, you give us a view from the bottom, part three takes us instead into what you call a view from the top. And you Mm. show us in this part um, of the book, which is, I think, four chapters of the book, that the crises that we just talked about were not simply failed frontier protests, as you put Mm. it. They also provided important opportunities for the Qing state to put forward political reforms. And you take us into those reforms um, and the the successes and, and the um, failures or the the not so successful reforms as well um in this period Mm. okay so these chapters explore what you identify and you call the most important question of this study the most important question of this study as you put it here how did the dual crises conjoin to shape Jiaqing's efforts of interstate building So these four chapters are going to take us into the context and development of these reforms and then what happens afterwards. Right. Okay. So as we move to chapter four, then um, as in our exploration of um, part three, albeit brief, you take us into an approach that you call an anthropology of the state, which is itself really Uh interesting. Uh And you're you're taking us here into um, the development of the inner court in the Qing and the dramatic rise in power of the inner court under Qianlong in particular. And we need to understand this to understand then um, the consequences of this and then how Jiaqing is going to reform it. So let's start by talking about that. Can you explain the importance of the inner court under Qianlong and perhaps talk um, in particular or make sure that we talk about the figure of Hushan, the Manchu battleman, which is sort of the villain of the story, uh, right, in many right. ways. Um, so who's Hushan, and how do we understand him in the context of um, what's happening in, in terms of the power of the inner court under Qianlong?
2: Okay. Uh, that's... Uh... Uh, That's just a big question, and uh, let's yeah. talk about them one by one. Sure. He Sun is a very important uh, figure, uh, uh, the villain of the book and uh, one of the greatest villains in Chinese history. And um, Sun, I call him the biggest political upstart in Qing history because in a in a period of you know six months, this young Manchu betterman, ascended from a minor bodyguard in the Forbidden City to become Qian Nong's personal favorite in 1776. No official in Qing history could match He when it comes to imperial favor and patronage. And throughout his 23 years of political career, he had the unbelievable fortune to assume all the powerful posts in the Qing court. Uh, and during his untitled regency, he largely controlled the executive power of the late Qianlong government, assisted by a nationwide patronage network that spanned both the inner court and outer court. And I'll talk about this concept later. And he also became the father-in-law of Princess Gulan He Xiao and Qianlong's youngest and favorite daughter. And this marriage alliance put He son under Qianlong's strong uh, protection. And, and by the 1790s, Khosun became so powerful that he was even mistaken for the second emperor by the British envoys to Beijing. Mm-hmm. And he was also the most corrupt official of Qing history.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: According to the most conservative calculation, his confiscated wealth amounted to no less than 30 million taels of silver. And that's about half of the state's Entire standby treasury surplus in the late channel ring.
0: Ah, oh, what a jerk! We love to <laughs> him in this. Book. Sorry, go on, go on.
2: Yeah, yeah. So he he was a very corrupt guy, and he intimidated a huge number of bureaucrats into paying him protection money during the 1790s. So the key problem is, okay, we have this powerful minister, and many people didn't like him. But what explained Hussein's dramatic rise to power? Of course, there are many reasons. And, uh, you know, perhaps most obvious of all was his personal quality and character. By all accounts, he was very talented, capable, charismatic, and simply some people call him a political prodigy. Uh, I won't go into the details, but, uh, you know, uh, he... Besides his personal quality, exceptional ability, he had an extraordinary devotion and absolute loyalty to his master, Chen Nong. He was very familiar with Chen Nong's temper, personality, and needs, which made him a faithful instrument of the aging imperial minister. And he did a super job of promoting his master as an unsurpassable sage, and he took advantage of every opportunity to ingratiate with him. He even imitated Chen style of calligraphy and poetry making, in order to share mutual entertainment with him. So, not surprisingly, Chen had unusual affection and faith for this Manchu bannerman, and. Uh, you know, some popular anecdotes even went so far as to say they were lovers, <laughs> and there was a homosexual relationship between the two, despite the forty-year difference in their ages.
0: Hey, why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah. So. Why not? Uh-huh.
2: Come on. Yeah. Besides this, Hussein's rise had deep economic roots. No official could match his ability when it comes to meeting Chen increasing physical needs mm-hmm. he you know forced the high officials and the wealthy merchants to send tribute gifts jing gong to the emperor and he also controlled a large number of embezzled resources through confiscation where investigating the bureaucrats' criminal cases. Most importantly, he helped design a semi-confidential system of self-assessed fines, Yi Zuiyin. And, uh, you know, it's a very effective system of both squeezing those powerful ministers and also controlling them. So, in Philip Kuhn's words, Nong and his financial wizards were running a second taxation system for the joint uh, enrichment. All those factors were important in Hesun's uh, rise, but in this book, I really emphasize that Hesun's rise foregrounds a structural feature of the imperial Chinese state, which was the exercise of unrestrained imperial power and the rise of the inner court. Mm-hmm. In late Qianlong reign, uh, you know, we can see the unprecedented concentration of power in Qianlong's hands, as well as his de- uh, his despol- uh, despotic use by his most trusted confidants like He Sun. a Qianlong, you know, needed a small and efficient inner court agency, which was a very small group of most trusted advisors and confidants that could help him tr- translate his ambitious goal into outcomes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And to this end, to you know, uh, it, uh, he, he accorded enormous power to the Grand Council and made it the best tour of imperial power and the highest decision-making organ in the Qing political system. But this kind of phenomenal development of the Junji Chu power, the Grand Council power, had its own problems, because from the 1770s onward, Qianlong became increasingly worried, wary of his dependency on the empowered Junji Chu, concerned that it might limit his free exercise of imperial will. And this change of attitude can be attributed to his deep-rooted distrust of Han officials who came to play a predominant role in Grand Council for the first time in Qing history.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the emperor feared that his loyal instrument of absolute rule, Grand Council, had become a threat to him with a trial of bureaucratic routinization and administrative rationalization ingrained in examination-based politics, because those Han Chinese grand counselors, they achieved the power through exams. So in order to circumvent this looming threat and to ensure his autocratic control, the Jun Chu, Chen uh, Nong encouraged the political superstar, He Sun, to form this Manchu-led hyper-faction in the late 1770s and pitted against the Han-dominated faction led by Liu Tongxun, Yu Min Zhong, and Liang Guozi. And this strategy of divide and conquer helped Qianlong Emperor solidify his control over the Grand Council in the last two decades of his rule. Mm-hmm. It also transformed Hoseon into the most formidable minister uh, interposed between the aging emperor and his outer court agencies with both monarchical and bureaucratic power in his hands. So only through this way can we really understand the dramatic rise of Hoseon's power, even though so many people, you know, are very angry and, uh, you know, hated him, but still, you know, he was able to, uh, you know, control much of the exact power and imperial power of the late Qianlong government. Great.
0: Thank you, Wen Chang. And, and one of the things that um, you show is not just the rise, but then the fall of Shan. So I'll right. just talk a little bit about this and summarize um, so that we can get to the reforms. I'm mean, strictly in the interest of time, but as we move from um, 4 to Chapter 5 and Chapter 6, we see Qianlong abdicate. Um, this is actually where the book started as well, and you show that it's actually a half-hearted abdication because he's Mm -hmm. still very much interested um, in his own power and in having control. And one of the things that he is still, uh, has a hand in, despite his abdication, is the attempt to quell this White Lotus uprising. Uh And so as you bring us into Chapter 4, this is a chapter that looks at what you call the Inner White Lotus Rebellion, Uh and it takes us into um, the development by the state of two different strategies to adapt to battlefield conditions and to try to quell the White Lotus Rebellion. Um, These two phases are um, the first phase when Long is still alive. And this is a phase that um, has been called, as you show here, the least effective and most corrupt of Qing military operations. He Shun mm. is um, very much in power in this period and basically the sense that the reader gets is that Long is really mismanaging the attempt to quell the White mm. Lotus Rebellion. Now with Long's death in 1799, this brings us to the second phase um, of attempts to quell the rebellion. And this is where the state gradually brings the uprising under control, under the leadership now of the new emperor Jiaqing. And you take us in this chapter through um, his uh, eventual subduing of He Shun. Um, he Shun is forced to commit suicide. Um, Jiaqing enacts what you show us here to be a kind of minimalist purge. And ultimately, as a result of Jiaqing's control of the situation, the rebellion is quelled. Now... Mm-hmm. As we move to the next chapter, you move us into really, in many ways, what's um, the beginning of the culmination of the book. And this is a focus on the reforms that Jiaqing enacts. Um, in mm-hmm. the wake of his quelling of He Shun. This is really right. important because as we talked about at the beginning of the book, um, one of the many contributions the book is making is precisely to shine light on this uh, period, the Jia Qing period, in a way that hasn't been done um, in a lot of previous Qing scholarship. So let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are some of the most important reforms that Jia Qing makes that we need to understand in order to understand how his reforms actually form the basis for um, what comes next later in the Qing. So what are some of the most important of his reforms to understand how this forms a foundation for ultimately um, enabling the Qing to better be equipped to Mm. handle crises in the future?
2: Yeah. the judging reforms uh, refers to uh, theories of moderate but decisive modifications in bureaucratic structure and policy making i want to emphasize the significance of you know institutional change because we have talked a lot about person's hegemony or regency and it explodes a structural constitutional dilemma ingrained in the Chinese imperial system, which is the difficulty of defining the perimeter of latent power, the inner court power, okay? The Latin, the inner court, was this small group of most trusted advisors of the emperor who helped him to make all the key decisions for state affairs, and they follow the emperor's will as the supreme law. And their power was not limited by any bureaucratic rules other than the emperor's, uh, uh, you know, private uh, uh, arbitrary will. So unlike the outer court, which was the former top of the government agencies and departments which handle this routine, massive business of governing the empire and the outer court officials they operate according to a series of detailed written rules and precedents uh, contained in the bureaucratic rule book the emperor you know designed those rules t- in order to regulate his tens of thousands of public functionaries but despite its important role the emperor also have a lot to worry about those bureaucratic rules and his public functionaries. So, in order to better control this vast bureaucratic outer court system, he turned to the inner court of a small group of most trusted advisors. uh, But the difficulty of defining the limits of inner court power, whose expansion might have contradictory effects on the emperor's power and the centralized monarchical rule. And I think this is a structural constitutional dilemma, you know, which was exposed uh, in, uh, or, you know, foregrounded in the Kherson's tragedy. So the emperor faced a very important challenge, which is how to balance the private personal interest of the emperor and the public systematic interest of the state which refers to its non-term sustainable reproduction. To handle this problem, Jaachi Emperor had two contradictory choices. One, he could like his father, enhance his personal grip on the government by promoting the inner course growth. But this convenient strategy might need to usurpation of monarchical authority by an overpowerful minister or agency with, as what happened in the late Qianlong reign. Alternatively, the judging emperor could undercut the non-institutional power base of the inner court by containing its actual legal privilege, an approach that would give him more outer court support as well as strong leverage in dealing with his private bureaucrats and this approach would also restrain his own arbitrary will and weaken his exercise, uh, exercise of absolute rule and his, uh, Jiaqin's ra- remedy, his solution, was to striving for increasing but controlled bureaucratization and routinization of the inner court. He tightened control over the inner court by making it more institutionalized and formalized while allowing it to return some of its former privileges, actual legal privileges, and responsibilities. And to explain this, I talk about the reforms of the Grand Council and the reform of the Imperial Household Department, Lei Wufu, and in both cases, the emperor tried to downgrade and bureaucratize the two major inner court agencies. And this reflected more than political expediency in order to appease long frustrated Whiting officials. I argue that it was such Downgrading and bureaucratization measures that protected those two inner court agencies from further oppositions from the outer court in the Jia reign and helped them weather even bigger political storms during the constitutional reforms of the late Qin uh, period. Uh, another key point uh, I want to emphasize about uh, Qin's institutional reform is that he himself understands that he was the victim of this political adjustment, and he was willing to be the victim of his own political reform. When the late the inner court, became more circumscribed and bureaucratized, the imperial power was also constrained, and routinized. And through this way, he was able to harmonize the hostile relationship between the inner court and outer court by self-consciously treating some of his own personal arbitrary will and power for a wider exercise of routine bureaucratic authority based on broader political participation and deliberation. And this de-emphasis on arbitrary power and personal bonds with officials contributed to the routinization of the late Qin emperorship. And this sort of imperial governance also promoted a more sustainable state-society relationship, which had a huge impact on the, you know, late reforms and the, uh, and other uh, major changes in the political system.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And um, as we, we don't have that much time left, but I just want to make sure we take a tiny little bit of time to mark what's happening in this last chapter before the conclusion. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that you're arguing here is not only did Jiaqing's policies and reforms allow the Qing to better cope with later events in precisely the way you just described, but some of the events that they were able to better cope with as a result were pers- were specific challenges that were associated in particular with um, Um, Increasingly complex, as you put it, relations externally. And it's the importance of situating the Qing within a larger context of foreign relations that you turn to in Chapter 7. Now, this is, I want to take just a tiny little bit of time to mark this because um, you're showing here another... Really major or very important contribution that the book is making um, in revising the way we understand the Qing, or at least the way we have been understanding it in the past couple of decades. Now you show here that the importance of foreign relations to understand uh, to understanding Qing history has actually been marginalized um, in the past couple of decades in favor of right. what has all has variously been called the you know the, a China-centered approach, which uh-huh. means any number of different things, right, depending on who you talk to, a Chinese. Right. Approach. Now you're arguing here for the importance of reintegrating the Qing into a broader context of foreign relations. Most mm-hmm. important in this context um, is your treatment of what's happening in, um, along the South China Coast in the context of piracy, but specifically in the context of Qing-Vietnam relations. Mm. So briefly, um, can you talk just a little bit about what's what's the most important? Aspect, or some of the most important aspects of this relationship and this changing relationship between the Qing and Vietnam for us to understand in order to understand the major argument that you're making um, in this last body chapter of the book.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, in this book, I try to strike a balance between the internal and external dynamic of historical change by re-emphasizing the significance of foreign relations as a pivotal factor in Chinese history. And when I talk about foreign relations, it does not limit to the relationship with Western powers. Uh, it uh, Mostly, it, it refers to the Qin's relationship with its regional labors, especially Vietnam. And I want to situate the Qin challenges in the larger regional background, but non-Western background, and this is the Sinocentric tributary system. And we should not take this system as a static normative order, unable to adjust itself to changes. And my chapter 7, relates transnational piracy to the tensions and accommodation within this hierarchical system and try to explore how different political entities interacted with each other and how such interplay affected regional power reconfiguration. And to better understand China's grappling with the West, it's important to first examine endogenous and original dynamism before it became overwhelmed by Western powers. And in this way, we can better understand the scope and limits of Western pressure as a catalyst in late Qing history. So that brings us to the relationship with the men. I use the concept of asymmetric anomaly. to describe this relationship through much of Chinese and Vietnamese history. And I actually borrowed the term from the political scientist Bradley Wormack, Wormack and he characterized, he characterized the relationship between the two countries as one of long-lasting asymmetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in this asymmetric relationship, both sides manage their affairs with the confidence that the power of the larger side, which is China, will not be challenged, and the autonomy of the smaller side, where in most of the time are will not be threatened. But this normacy, as we can see from the chapter 7, began to be seriously challenged in the late 18th century with the rise of the aggressive Taizong regime, which unified the Vietnamese state and, as uh, Alexandra Woodside argues, inaugurated the modern chapter of Vietnamese history. So the Taizong regime, starting from 1780s, embarked on an unprecedented program that tried to, trying to create a new re, reinvigorated Vietnamese kingdom. They did a number of things. Besides defeating the Qin military expedition and sponsoring pirates' violence in Guangdong and Fujian, this Taizong regime also provided support for the Heaven and Earth Society activities Tian Di Hui, in Guangxi, and they even requested the Manchu court to marry him an imperial princess, which was unprecedented request. Most extraordinarily, he even demanded that the Qing Empire return the two southern provinces of Guangxi and Guangdong to Vietnam and nine. Obviously, the, the you know the Taizan ruler, the Guangchong Emperor, tried to restore the ancient Vietnamese territory and reestablish the unity of the Nan Yue Kingdom, which was the first independent Vietnamese state in their history. So, another important example which shows this rising Vietnamese uh, state and empire building is this Wayne ruler, Ga Long, the founding ruler of the Wayne dynasty, the new Wayne dynasty. He tried to change the name of the Vietnamese state from Annan to Nanve. But for thousands of years, for uh, over a thousand years, Chinese dynasties referred to their southern lab- labor as Annan. Mm-hmm. By proposing the new national title, lan Lanve, the Wing ruler emphasized the historical grounds of Vietnamese autonomy from China by harking back to the glorified era of his first independent kingdom. So, he asserted a strengthened identity for his newly unified state, and furthermore used it to support his own legitimacy. But to the Chinese, this new name Nan Wei, carried the dangerous connotation of Vietnamese invasion crossing over from the south to attack China. So, this is a very interesting example of this negotiation process in play. Jia Qing came up with, you know, he hated this term, and he came up with a less controversial name, which reversed the order of the two characters. Uh, And you have Vietnam, as we can, uh, as as, uh, it is still used today. So through all those uh, uh, examples, I want to show that this traditional hierarchical ties that bound Vietnam to China in the bu- tributary system appear to have weakened around the turn of the 19th century. And the emperor of Qin dynasty, Jia Qing, understands this. He acknowledged this limited uh, ability to project the Qin power outside its territory. So, he retreated in his diplomatic uh, policies and stand aloof from affairs of Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, uh, I think those adjustments was important in order to continue to, uh, you know, maintain this tributary system, okay? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, in order to focus uh, the attention on domestic crisis and better uh, reproduce the empire.
0: Great. Well, Wenchun, thank you so much. Um, the, we don't um, have too much more time. So I'll just mention for listeners who are particularly interested in this element of foreign relations and its um, engagement with the Qing, that that chapter continues to talk about not just Vietnam um, and its relations with the Qing, but the importance of French um, relations with Vietnam and also the, the importance of British expansion into the South China Sea and the ways that this shaped late Qing foreign relations in late Qing history. So Wen Chang, there's a ton of material in the book. Um, clearly, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a very rich study, and as I think is clear um, from your explanations, it's a very multi-layered study. And there's a lot going on. Given that, though, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and um, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I want to emphasize a couple of points. Uh, uh, first, uh, I hope this book would stimulate more interest in the study of the half century before the first Open War. And this period from roughly the 1780s to 1830s is often referred to as a period of great divergence, not only between high Qing and late Qing, but also between China and Western Europe. Yes, in the past, the Decades we have scholars devote increasing attention to this watershed peer road and uh, uh, to to have an increasingly positive interpretation of this period. road. But I think there is still so much to know about this period road and its full significance and complex dynamics. And the second point I want to emphasize is that this book is a little bit different from the typical chain study type Historical discussion, and as we, you know, as the uh, listeners can uh, know from uh, our conversation, this book relies both on archival research and theoretically informed models from social science to analyze different kinds of historical structures, processes, and events by making comparisons and drawing connections. Of course. This new approach has its strengths and challenges, but I hope it will be at least uh, a little bit helpful to reframe our perspective of Chinese history and try to make our work more relevant to scholars outside this field.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Wenxiong, um, so much for sharing that with us. And congratulations on the book. And now that the book is out, um, what's currently inspiring you? Are there any new projects you've turned to that are, um, that are occupying your time right now?
2: Uh, yeah. Um, I will continue my research on the late 18th and early 19th centuries and try to push it in new directions. I just started a new project based on the first book, It focused on the similar period, maybe a little longer, from the 1770s to 1830s, uh, just before the Opium war. And this new project studies the cultural politics elected by different intellectual groups and official factions as they try to cope with this dramatic combination of crisis through various reform efforts. So this project looks beyond social political history to new cultural history, which marks a new departure for me, but I'm very excited about it.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Best of luck with that project. It also sounds great. Um, And thank you for spending the time to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on the book.
2: Thank you very much. It's nice talking with you about my book.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.